Hi, I'm Helis Kendrick. And I'm Chris Keane. And this is Series 2 of the Recruit for Spouses podcast. In this episode, we have the absolute pleasure to talk to double Paralympic gold medalist and nine-time world champion Emma Wiggs MBE. There's so much we talk about, including confidence, networking and connecting, and we hear all about the day Emma met the Queen. Firstly, though, let's go right back to the start and hear all about Emma's upbringing. Yeah, a bit of background. I was able-bodied growing up, so very sporty, very active, got a twin brother and an older sister, so a very kind of middle-class family, spent lots of time outdoors, you know, had a really good childhood, I think, uh, loved school, spent too much time doing PE, I think. I think most of my reports said if I could be more like my sister, I probably would do better in exams. But yeah, just loved doing anything active, decided I wanted to be a PE teacher and kind of share that passion for sport with other youngsters and got a place at university, but was determined to have a year out which in 1998 probably wasn't the done thing. I can still remember Mrs. Richards, my head, saying to me, don't take a year out, that's a terrible idea. Anything could happen, you should go straight to university. But I was really determined to go and try something different and new. And I guess maybe like some people listening, you've got those nerves of travelling to another part of the world and doing something that you maybe weren't expecting to do. But I had all of that excitement and that was the big plan, getting on a plane to Australia and working on a farm for six months and then travelling for six months and it didn't quite go as planned. So tell me, you got to Australia and you got a job working on a farm and your idea was to spend a gap year there, just kind of travelling around, backpacking as you do. I guess doing all the things that you can do when you're 18 and on the other side of the world to your parents, I guess, for a year. So that was the big plan, to work on this farm and I got off the plane, jumped off the plane, I think after the long flight with my rucksack and was so excited to get to this farm and spent six weeks chasing sheep and you know avoiding snakes and doing all these incredible things with this family and then basically overnight went to bed not feeling great and overnight I was paralyzed in my arms and my legs from a virus Um, so I guess in that moment life changed quite dramatically and I think hopefully that's something that whilst I hope no one else has experienced something quite as dramatic as that, I think change is something that hits all of us and sometimes it's hugely unexpected and dramatic and it can really throw us. And I think, you know, clearly my life looked very different very, very quickly as an 18-year-old. That's quite a challenge. That's quite a big change. So you, at that point, realised that... Did you have to go to hospital? What, yeah, what so I was, I was hospitalised straight away. I was very, very poorly and unwell and they weren't really sure what had gone on so Mm -hmm. it was a case really of waiting to see how bad things were going to get and and what had happened and I don't know a lot of the details but basically after about six weeks my arms had started to recover but the nerve damage from sort of pelvis down was too substantial so eventually we flew we were medivaced home my mum flew out to Australia to fly back with me and I started looking at you know what I was going to do and what direction I was going to go in But that started with trying to get used to a life in a wheelchair and a life that looked a bit different to what I'd planned. And I think Mm. that was really challenging. I think as an 18 year old, you know, I was quite stubborn anyway. So I think to suddenly have someone say you can't do these things, you can't be a PE teacher, you can't live by yourself. You need to stay at home and be looked after. I can really now all these years on remember someone, one of the doctors saying to me, you need to understand, Emma, you need to be looked after for the rest of your life. And I just thought, no, you know, Mm. I don't, that wasn't the plan. Mm. And I think that kind of bullish determination, somewhat foolishly, 
at times got me through the initial years, but probably made it a bit more of a roller coaster journey than it needed to be. But I think it was definitely a, a saviour for me to have that kind of determination to prove the doctors wrong and, and probably that bit of disbelief. And I think our beliefs quite often can limit us. In those few years, I think they helped me, mm. but then they came back to bite me in the bum a bit later. And were there any sort of significant people in your life at that time that helped you to sort of get your head around the situation that you found yourself in? I think probably like, you know, most of us, we've got family or friends around us. And certainly for me, my family were an absolute rock. I think it's difficult. You know, my friends were all off doing the exciting things that you're supposed to do when you're 18. So off at university. And I think I felt a little bit isolated, probably, to start with. Quite a, a usual feeling of kind of loneliness and, and isolation. But I was very lucky to have a family that believed I could still do what I wanted to do, which was very much still teaching. And they helped me kind of facilitate that. Mm. So I was very lucky. So loneliness and isolation is something that a lot of military families experience. They go to different places. And I heard you speak once about comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. How did you get around that sort of, you know, looking at somebody else saying, well, it's so okay for them because they've got legs. So it's okay for them because they can do this. How did you get yeah. your mindset in a different place? I think if I'm honest, Elleth, it's been a, a journey of 20 plus years and I'm still not there. I still have those moments where I do compare myself to other people and you have those moments where you do feel a bit sorry for yourself and they are fewer than they were. But I think I love that phrase, comparison is the thief of joy because it's never, ever been truer for me than in the last 20 years of my life. And it's just deeply unhelpful and we all do it all the time and I think one thing that I've learned probably in the last four or five years that I wish I'd learned 20 years ago was how we have to really be actively taking a choice in how we are going to behave and how we're going to react to situations and how we're going to respond and that is really helpful in, in making me accountable to not compare myself to mm. other people so mm. I make a conscious effort and I think this is another thing Sometimes we expect ourselves to be more confident or be more successful and we just expect it's going to happen. If I really want it, it'll happen and it's just not the case. For me, I've had to consciously make an effort to change my unhelpful behaviours into more helpful ones. And did you have unhelpful behaviours? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was choosing to compare myself and choosing to, to maybe see the things that I couldn't do and use that as a stick to bash myself mm. over the head with. Maybe people listening have experience the same when they've when they've felt lonely or that they haven't got their usual support network or whatever it might be we can then fester a bit and, mm. and that doesn't mean to say we're feeling sorry for ourselves but I think it can fester and I think we can let it roll into tomorrow and the next day mm -hmm. and the next day and I certainly was doing that I would let something upset me and I would use that as a stick to say well you see I told you you were rubbish mm. and that would fester and roll into the other days and I just did some work with a psychologist and realised that I could I could choose to not feel quite as bad as that. And it was that active choice that we have to then practice. So actually give us some ideas of how you do that. So is it like people talk about reframing, for example? Yeah. Is that something that you... <laughs> it's probably going to sound ridiculous on a, on a podcast, but, and bear with me, I look at myself in the mirror in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth. Yeah. And I kind of have that moment to say, okay, this is what I've got on today and this is how I want to be or this is how I want to behave, or this is how I want to respond. It only takes a minute or two minutes if you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes. And that gives me a moment to be accountable. Mm -hmm. Because what I was finding was by not doing that, I was going into my day head first, 
probably taking a bit of yesterday with me yeah. and then probably not responding in a way that I wanted to for Emma Wiggs, yeah. to make Emma Wiggs feel proud. Yeah. I was just then rolling with it. So by taking that moment, and you know, not everybody's got that time in the morning, but everyone brushes their teeth, mm-hmm. or hopefully they brush their teeth. <laughs> not my son. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe not a teenage boy, but hopefully everyone brushes their teeth. And I just realised that that's a real moment that we could be using to set ourselves up. And it doesn't work every day. It yeah. doesn't. But it works more days than it didn't. And I found that a really powerful change to just take that moment. I guess it's kind of what's my attitude for today? What's my mindset? How do I want to feel when I get into bed? None of us are going to look at ourselves and say, today I'm going to be a real twat in the mirror. Yeah. You know, We're yeah, not going yeah. to say that. We're not going to say I'm going to be really negative or I'm going to be really self-destructive or self-critical. And therefore, mm-hmm. when we go to do it, we have that kind of accountability check. Yeah. And I just find it really useful. So it might be something that people yeah. have a go at. And if you feel a bit silly doing it the first time, <laughs> you don't have to do it out loud even. It can be in your head. Yeah. It's just that skill that we have to improve by practice. So we're going to go back to talking about challenges because a lot of the listeners here are far away from their family network. They have maybe you know, young children and I'm not trying to put people in categories here, but they're thinking, well, it's all right for you know you because of this or that you talk about a process around how do you get out of that it's not really a hole but how do you build that sort of framework I know and I am always really acutely aware that I'm very fortunate that my job is to be a canoeist (laughs) which let's face it isn't a real job so I am really aware that people have really demanding lives with lots of plates that they're spinning and I'm really fortunate that I can paddle a boat go to the gym eat and rest and recover and repeat And I think the one thing that I'm passionate about is trying to share the things that I think make my life as a canoeist easier because I absolutely believe they make other people's lives easier, but also being aware that there's lots of things going on. So I think for me, it is a process and it's something that you've got to try and build and develop and and really get hold of. And it started for me by being really clear about what my values were. So what were Emma Wiggs's values? What was important for me? And when I actually sat down and did that, I was quite amazed because it wasn't canoeing. It wasn't paddling a boat fast or winning medals. And yet that was what I did. That wasn't really my values. My values were about being passionate and being determined and loving and being supportive to my family, being a teammate that could be depended upon, and then also integrity. So those were my kind of five really key values. And I remember being given this A4 piece of paper with loads of different values on and I had to pick four or five. And I was like, well, I've got 15. Yeah. And they're not my true values. So you, do, you have to spend some time actually thinking about what is it that makes me happy and makes me me. And when we do that, we come up with these things that are absolutely central to us being happy. Mm-hmm. And if we're happy, we're going to perform better or we're going to do our jobs better or mm-hmm. we're going to feel better. And it's just all interlinked. So once I had my values, I was able to work out... I guess it's kind of examples of things that I was doing on a daily basis that were showing these values and things that I was doing that wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) It was actually quite awakening to see the things that I was doing on a quite regular basis that was not demonstrating my values. Yeah. And that was a real wake-up call and a real accountability check. One of my values is passionate about challenge. So I want to be passionate about challenge. So something I was doing on a daily basis was challenging all my teammates who might be turning up late or not maybe giving as much effort that I thought they should be giving or they could be giving. And I was doing that because I felt that was going to help them and make us all better and all the rest of it. And actually, that comes across as, A, really annoying. 
And B, it goes completely against. If I'm annoying my teammates, who I spend a lot of time with, that goes against my value of wanting to be a dependable teammate. It's that kind of example of thinking, what am I doing that I know is unhelpful? But what am I doing that actually someone else might find really unhelpful? So it's being a bit more aware. So by doing that, I was then able to think, right, okay, well, if I don't challenge them about being late, I'll role model being early Mm -hmm. and see how that... So I'm doing the same thing. I'm still living by my value but I'm just doing it in a slightly different way. Yeah, That was a real good learning for me that actually we can have an impact even when we're not meaning to. So quite often our intention when we do something can be taken completely differently to the person that's experiencing it. Yeah, And that's quite hard, I think, yeah. to feel like, well, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I didn't mean that. Yeah. Well, that's, how, that's yeah. what I heard. This well, is... no, I didn't quite mean that. And I think we can get yeah. that. And particularly when people listening are, are miles away from friends and family, you know, maybe there's a text message that we take a different way or the lack of a message that we take that different intention than was actually meant yeah. from that. And that can be damaging. And I think I'm in a different place now where I used to use that to damage myself a bit more. Mm-hmm. But now I, I kind of reframe it and, and look at it differently. Yeah, it's very difficult as a military spouse because often our serving partners are away on training or they're away a lot. And we have that tiny moment we're allowed to speak to them and some, for example, submariners' wives or partners, they don't get to speak to their partners for months on end. Yeah, wow. So that communication is really key. And actually, it's about when they do call. And when we were in Afghanistan, they'd phone in and it would be like you'd have that quick two minute call. And you always had to say, like, I'm really good. Everything's great. The kids are fine. You know, you'd give them a drill of everything. But you put the phone down and burst into tears yeah. because actually the challenge around that. So there's so many and we rely very heavily on our peers as well. So how much would you say other people have to rely on other people because obviously you've talked very much about a process and there's there's a way of you know reframing yeah. your confidence but how do you rely on other people to help you support yeah, you absolutely I think people often see see us as canoeists and we're individual boats and they say oh you know it must be harder than an individual sport and it's absolutely not I've mm. got such a team of people that I can draw on so mm. if I make the right choices I've got people there but we have to sometimes reach out mm-hmm. so I think for me knowing what I need when I'm having a bad day is one thing. If I haven't shared that with anybody, mm. how are they going to know what to do? Yeah. And a great example for me, and again, it's a canoeing one, so I apologise in advance, but it's applicable to people's lives. So in bad weather, I really struggle. I really feel more disabled, a bit inadequate, and it's a lot more challenging. So I used to freak out when the weather was bad. And my coach, again, wanted to help, thought he was doing the right thing. So he would just say, it's the same for everyone. Don't worry, it's the same for everyone. And actually, I'm thinking, well, it's not the same for everyone because I find it hard and da 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 And so he was kind of thinking he was being helpful, but really not being helpful. And we reached a point where I was actually honest enough to say, I know you think you're helping, but when I feel like this, what I really need you to do is to say this and mm-hmm. to do this. So I asked him, rather than saying it's the same for everyone, can you just say, I know it's not great. So show that little bit of understanding. I know it's not great conditions but you've done it before and we've got a plan. Mm-hmm. So it's a subtle difference. Yeah. But if I hadn't been, I guess, vulnerable enough and honest enough with him to say, mm-hmm. you know, when you do this, it's actually quite unhelpful. Actually, what I need you to do is this. We wouldn't have moved on. And I did the same with my wife as well. <laughs> Not long ago, I said, you know, you know, when this happens at home, you know, one of those stupid arguments that everyone has at home. Mm-hmm. And it probably happens more in the military because I guess, you know, when your spouse comes back, 
it's quite pressured, isn't it? Because you're pleased to have them back, but they've also come back into yeah. your life that you've been running quite smoothly. So there must be little, little things, yeah. really stupid little things that, yeah. that might become annoying. Unless we actually say, do you know what? That really annoys me when you say that. Can you try this or can you try it? And ask for feedback as well. Then we're not giving ourselves the chance to feel better and to move forward. And how did they take that? How did your your coach take that yeah. and then how did your wife take it it's two very different yeah, dynamics was, yeah there. slightly different responses but my co- <laughs> my coach looked a bit hurt and a bit upset that he was like he thought he was being really helpful but then he was very quickly like oh okay so I could be more helpful I could yeah. be more helpful if, if I did this yes absolutely oh okay great so then he was really eager to get it right and to say something because we're both wanting the same thing mm-hmm. we're both wanting to paddle a silly little piece of carbon fiber as fast as we can we were both doing things that were being unhelpful to that shared dream. Yeah. So I think he was quite he was quite open to it. I think Jem, on the other hand, I think it was a shock. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure we always do it in our personal relationships. But mm. at the same time, she said, well, it really annoys me when you don't tip the washing up liquid out the bowl. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. I'll, yeah. I'm going to make a real effort to, yeah, to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. And now I make a real effort to do that. So it's kind of like, yeah. it, it's that giving and receiving. Yeah. That I think is so important and I think sometimes we're reluctant to do it because we see it as a sign of weakness or we yeah. see it as a as a sign of conflict mm, yeah. and I just now see it as a real as a real sign of wanting to make everything better and a bit yeah. happier for yeah. people and when do you choose that moment obviously not when you're in the middle of oh I gotta do this and you yeah. know because we talk about often when our serving partners come back and everything is done for them and they get back and then you've got the children and you've got the dogs to walk and you've got the school run and you've got everything you know cooking and all of a sudden you've got an extra person to have to deal with and yeah. the worst time to say I need you to be like this is when you're feeling at your worst yeah. when is the right moment to actually I ask that question it, yeah it's a really good point I think it's about choosing choosing your moment. And I think for us, particularly within my job, we have very clear and set out review periods. So those are the periods where you know there's less pressure from competition. We can then look at what we're doing, see how we want to do it better. And that's the moments that we choose for that. But then saying that, I would say 80% of my teammates don't use that period to actually be honest and say, this is a bit annoying or this isn't working for me or how could this be better? Mm. I think it is a skill. Yeah. And I think on the personal side, I think you you try and have these conversations when things are good. Yeah, yeah. Because actually that's the time where it's a bit less threatening. Yeah. And we've got the energy. And I think energy for me as well, Hedeth, is is something that we need to be so protective of mm. because when we're struggling with challenge or with change, quite often our energy, I like call it my energy ball, our energy ball is getting diminished all the time. Mm. And if we can be a bit more protective of our own energy ball, we're giving ourselves a better chance to fight these emotions or to hold ourselves accountable or to make a real effort to make a change that's going to make us happier. Yeah. But we have to be careful with that energy. Yeah. So let's talk about a bad day because I know we're going to talk about the amazing things in a minute because there are plenty of those. But actually... We all have bad days, good days, bad days. (laughs) And I know for myself, you know, the amount of doors that were slammed in my face when I started RFS, it was just unbelievable. But with you, talk me through a bad day. Yeah. Again, I've probably got two bits of hopefully helpful advice here. I also did a piece of work that looked at what does Emma Wiggs look like on a good day? So what does Emma Wiggs look like when she's got loads of energy and she's feeling positive and 
you know, what does that actually look like in terms of either a character? So you could think of a cartoon character or you could think of just a, a kind of bullet point list of what you look like on a good day and then what you look like on a bad day. So for me, when I did this, I kind of came up with Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, you know, as, <laughs> yeah. as me on a bad day. Yeah. And it gave me that kind of visual thing to kind of actually say, do you know what? It's OK, because who doesn't like Eeyore? So even mm. on a bad day, with all the bits that could be better about Eeyore, I, we all still like him. Mm. So it gave me that kind of reassurance to be like, OK, bad days are fine and mm. everybody has them. But then how am I going to make Eeyore back into the Emma that's on a good day? Mm-hmm. And I think if we do that first step, you know, we probably all know, well, actually, on a bad day, I'm probably grumpy or I might be a bit snappy, but we all might need something different. So you might need a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. You might just need someone in the office to kind of realise that you're having a bad day and slide you a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So one of my teammates just wants no one to talk to them. If they're having a bad day, they want to be left alone. But you know that. But we know that now. Whereas one of the other teammates wants you to talk about his children because then he'll come out of his bad day. So unless we know how to help someone and how to help ourselves, we can't really take that first step. So I'd kind of worked out what Eeyore was like and what Eeyore needed. And some of that started with feeling like I was back in control. Mm -hmm. Because I think hopefully it's a common feeling of when we're having a bad day, it's because probably we feel out of control. Mm -hmm. Out of control of maybe that you're a spouse that's separated from your partner or you've got a million things on, or you're in a country you're not used to or whatever it might be, that is an element of out of control. And that's really important to try and get some control. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is ask myself, okay, so what would success look like today? Like today, not what would I love today to look like? In an ideal world, when Emma's feeling amazing and the sun is shining, I want today to look like this, not that. What does today look like given... I'm feeling a bit rubbish and I haven't got a lot of energy. Then that allows me to then think, actually, do you know what? Success would be, and this has happened to me a number of times, success is getting to the point where I get home tonight and I have not been a wrecking ball at training Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. So sometimes just surviving is enough. Mm -hmm. And then we often then are a bit kinder to ourselves, a bit more aware of, of that energy ball we talked about. And then as a consequence, we're a bit better able to deal with tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It kind of builds, it's momentum. So we can, if we're really clear and less damaging to ourselves, we then build a bit of momentum for the next day and the next day and the next day. So I would really try and think about, okay, so I know I'm having a bad day. What would success be? And that could be, you know, picking the kids up on time or not forgetting one of the kids or... Keeping it really simple. Yeah, keeping it really simple. Like, you know, maybe they'll eat their dinner that I spent an hour preparing or, or whatever it might be. Or, you know, walking the dog and not having a tear. Like, not, not that there's anything wrong with having a tear, but just setting yourself something that is manageable and within the context that you're facing. Mm-hmm. Because quite often, because of social media or our perceptions, we expect ourselves to be, got these superhumans that can do all these things. And that's just not the real world. We've mm. got to be kinder to ourselves within our context. And all of our contexts are different. Yeah. So if we can be clear on what does success look like for Emma Wiggs today, Mm -hmm. then we're going to go to bed, hopefully, in a bit of a better shape, which means tomorrow is going to be better. That's amazing. Talk to me about connection, because I saw one of your keynotes and you talked really well about how you connect with others around you. Talk to me a bit about that. I think, again, you know, I've been really lucky in my life through those ups and downs. There's been something that's been consistent and that's the connections that I've got with people. So for me, my family are clearly really, really important. But it's how we can connect with people 
on a daily basis and on a kind of authentic level, I think, that gives us the opportunity to then have the support when we need it. Mm-hmm. And that is more challenging when we're separated by distance. Mm-hmm. So if you're across the world, that is more challenging. But there are opportunities to have these connections. And for me, I've found real advantage and real positivity from the staff that we work with at Canoeing. So we all work with the same staff and they all work super hard and they're amazing. But I believe I get something extra mm-hmm. because yeah. I've tried to have a connection that makes them a bit more aware of me and mm-hmm. my working, so my Eeyore or my whatever it might be. And that honesty is then reflected in in how we can work together to, in a metaphor that I think a rower came up with, make the boat go faster. That's yeah. what we can do. Mm-hmm. So those connections make that stronger. But I think they're important for all of us. And even if we feel distance from them, I think there's real opportunity through you know, making an effort or making that honest connection with people is just that vulnerability, being prepared to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We all want to help people, don't we? It's human nature. Yeah. And that goes back to your values as well. And how would you connect with somebody? So you walk into a room, we talk a lot about networking and often military families, spouses are often put in a situation where they walk into a room and they don't know anybody. So how would you connect with people around you? I don't know. I feel like I've been given a head start because my my mum is an amazing communicator and brought us up to be interested in in other people and to care. Mm -hmm. And I think if we've got those as kind of values and key skills, we've kind of got a bit of a head start. But I think for me, the biggest thing I try to do is just be genuine and just be honest and be interested. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to feel like I'm I'm looking to understand their situation or what they're talking about rather than challenge them or Mm. give an example of when I've done it. Or, you know, there's this great clip on YouTube called It's Not About the Nail. Mm -hmm. It's worth Googling if if you want to see it. And it's basically saying, you know, sometimes people just want to tell you what's going on for them. They don't want you to solve it. They don't need you to solve it. One of my go-tos was to try and solve it. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's not about that. It's about listening and having that human moment, I guess. And I think it's something we can get better at. So I have to kind of stop trying to solve everybody else's problems or say, oh, I've got this. And in fact, I've probably done this for the last 40 minutes. But that's all about your values. You're going back to your yeah. values again and connection and talk about choice as well, which is really important. Now, we're going to talk about you. I mean, wow, you've made history and you became the first ever female Paralympic paracanuist. Rio gold, Tokyo gold, Moscow, Milan, Copenhagen. Unbelievable. Mind-blowing. It is phenomenal what you've achieved. It really is. And it is so amazing that, you know, you come and speak to us on this podcast. But you know, I really feel 100%, this is absolutely genuine from my heart, there is nothing special about me and I think people read out lovely lists of of shiny medals and all the rest of it but I genuinely feel privileged that I have had people around me to support me and teach me things like the talking to yourself in the mirror or working out what your success is and being kinder to yourself teach me these strategies that have allowed me to perform in a canoe or probably more importantly be a bit happier and a bit more content with my life. And I feel like it's these moments, like the moment in Australia, life-changing. But it's what we do in these moments that will define us. And I think for me, I feel really fortunate that there's been people around me that have helped me make the right choices. Not always Mm -hmm. the right choices, (laughs) but more often than not, the choices that are going to lead me 
on a different path. And I think that's genuinely something that we can share with the listeners and hopefully make someone's day a bit better. Yeah, and MBE as well. And that was an incredible honour. And, you know, more so for my family. So the fact it's lovely to get recognition, but you feel kind of, do I deserve it for paddling a boat? It was actually for work in the bigger world of canoeing, but it was more about my family being able to share in that moment and to see the joy that they can get from from what I feel lucky enough to do and you know I don't know whether it's a nice way to wrap it up but I feel incredibly privileged that as a person with a disability what two-thirds of me work let's be honest I am fitter stronger and more able than I ever was able-bodied yeah and I think that's through the things that I've experienced and the help and the support and the lessons that I've learned amazing and plan the paddle paddle the plan yeah yeah you know, my mum came up with that and again that's <laughs> you know not everyone's a planner but I do like a plan and you know just be adaptable and and just be open to change but I think probably the biggest the biggest thing is to just be really aware of you and that energy ball that we talked about and mm-hmm. the things that we're doing that might actually be our natural behaviors but they might be unhelpful yeah and is there a way that I could just do them a bit less and I think that was a real game changer so to this person that is sitting on their sofa right now thinking, where do I start? You know, I just need a job. I just want to get out there and, and get some work. Yeah. They've just moved to new location. Serving partner's probably been deployed or is away on training. They have young children. What would you say to that person who probably hasn't got dressed yet and yeah. is probably at home sat on the sofa thinking, where do I start? Or to the person who may have had to give up their career for the military, what would you say to that person now? I would say tomorrow morning when you're brushing your teeth, ask yourself what success looks like today. And I would go from there. And keep it simple. Very simple. Yeah. Very, very simple. And then we build from there and we build from there and we go again. Yeah. So Emma, we can't finish today without mentioning the Queen because obviously... We recently said goodbye to her and you met her. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of meeting her? Yeah, I think I was really amazed to hear that 30% of people in the country have met her or been in her presence. So I feel still really honoured to have, have met her. It was at a garden party and as one of the people there with a disability, we were kind of lined up <laughs> to meet the royal family. And I think some of the others came past first, so Kate and William. And then Prince Philip and the Queen came along and it was just the most surreal moment because she was so much smaller than than I thought but there was this presence and this kind of aura that came off her that just meant I was spellbound I really was and I still get goosebumps now when I think about it I think it was those blue eyes and that smile and you know it was a very brief hello but she immediately in those few minutes it must have been two or three minutes just made me feel like she actually was genuinely interested in in Emma Wiggs. (laughs) And clearly she can't have been because there was hundreds of people at this garden party that she'd met. But for those few moments, I was spellbound. I was absolutely entranced, really, by her presence and her impact. It's unimaginable, the impact that she's had. You know, she is someone that everybody in the world knows, and she's a female. And Mm. I just think it's so powerful to have had her as our queen and to see her lead in the way that she did with such authority, but also no kind of stroppy power that sometimes I think we do we do on our day-to-day basis. She just was that constant guiding presence that I think just got things right. And I'm sure on some days got things wrong. But for me, as a, as a female growing up, she was an incredible role model and someone whose values 
along with her cheeky smile and most of all her, her love for her family, I will cherish for forever and I think taught us a huge amount. So a huge thank you to Emma Wiggs for featuring on our podcast today. If you'd like to read more about her achievements and some of the other incredible things that she's done, just head over to her website, which is emmawiggs.com. And don't forget, you can listen to all of our previous episodes by searching for the Recruit for Spouses podcast wherever you normally get your podcast from. 